It's Drew here, presenting DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. Some exciting news to start this episode. Australian listeners may be aware of the curious fact that many of the best safety practitioners in Australia speak with British accents. That's not because Australians are bad at safety, but because if you want to take safety management seriously in Australia, there's nowhere to learn how. There are a few places with graduate certificate courses in occupational health and safety, but if you're listening to this podcast, you're almost certainly aware that personal safety and major hazard safety are not the same thing. Moreover, a lot of personal safety teaching is supported by negative and outdated attitudes towards safety that we don't want to spill over into system safety management. Well, the exciting news is that one of the world leaders in safety thinking, Sidney Decker, is starting up a new graduate program. It's a graduate certificate in safety leadership, with the leadership referring as much to leading thinking as leading organisations. So if you're Australian, involved in safety, and you've been putting off doing some further study, you really now have no excuse. The program is going to be made up of four courses, two online and two in one week intensive mode, just like going along to a course. With apologies to non-Australian listeners who don't have this fantastic opportunity available to them, I'll be mentioning the new program a few times in the coming months. Of course, if you're not Australian and you'd like to come study or research safety in a place where the sun shines and safety salaries are high, you're welcome to join us. I'm also looking for a couple of high-quality PhD students to join up as well. Anyway, enough advertorial. This episode is a piece I wrote a while ago to help clarify my own thoughts about safety management systems. It's a bit shorter than a full episode, and it mentions several accidents we've talked about before in other episodes. The title of the piece is Managing Safety is Not Enough. Up until the early 1900s, if you talked about safety, you were probably discussing accidents. Specifically, you would have been talking about technical failures and human factors. As management science and organisational theory became a growing field of study, people started to talk about management of safety as a specialist topic. A pair of authors called Hale and Hovden described the early safety management literature as accumulated common sense and general management principles applied to the specific field of safety. This trend has continued to the present day. As general management theory develops, it gets progressively applied to safety. As far as I can tell, there's typically about an eight to 10 year delay between when a new management idea gets promoted and when people start applying it to safety management. In the early 1970s and 80s though, there was a series of accidents which triggered a really intensive examination of organizational safety. Both the idea and reality of management failure weren't new in safety research. What was special about these accidents is that they all occurred in industries that already had strong safety regulation in place. Previously, you could have just passed it off by saying the accident happened because of a lack of safety management. Suddenly, that wasn't enough. There was plenty of safety management going on. It just wasn't working more sophisticated explanations were needed. So here are the stories. There are five of them. The first accident, Flixborough, in 1974. 
The Nipro factory in Flixborough, UK, produced and circulated large quantities of cyclohexane, which is a highly explosive gas. They discovered a large crack in number 5 reactor, which was one of six chemical reactor units, essentially large tanks. Number 5 was removed from service and they installed temporary pipework to bypass it. And in hindsight, this was a bad call. For starters, no attempt was made to diagnose the cause of the crack or to inspect the other reactors before starting the plant. A crack simply shouldn't have happened, and they shouldn't have kept going until they understood why it had happened. The second problem was that the bypass was installed without appropriate engineering design and safety analysis. They'd carefully designed the original reactor tanks and pipeworks, and they'd supported this by high-quality safety analysis. They then jury-rigged pipes around this carefully designed pipework, with none of the same consideration. Two months after the bypass was fitted, it ruptured. It released a large quantity of cyclohexane which exploded, destroying the plant and killing 28 workers. Two separate inquiries were conducted, a court of inquiry into the causes of the accident, and an expert committee examining policy and regulation for major hazard plants. Despite its limited terms of reference, the Court of Inquiry report emphasises the organisational causes of the accident. The general approach of the report is summed up in the quote, NIPRO were safety conscious. The fact that the explosion at Flixborough did take place shows that by accident, mishap and misadventure, the stage may unconsciously be set for disaster. The report is particularly clear about the assignment of blame. It explains that all of the individuals acted diligently, but that due to staff management issues and reorganisation, there was no mechanical engineer on site with sufficient qualification, status and authority to deal with complex or novel engineering problems and to insist on proper measures being taken. In other words, the disaster occurred despite safety management because of organisational factors. The second accident, Seveso, in 1976. On July 10, 1976, a large quantity of dioxin was released from the Icmesa plant in Seveso, Italy. Dioxin is a dangerous byproduct of trichlorophenol production. In well-controlled reactions, only small quantities of dioxin are generated, but at high temperatures, much larger quantities of dioxin may be produced. Once this starts to happen, though, the reaction is exothermic, generating even more heat and more dioxin. For reasons that are really not definitively understood, and there was a lot of academic debate for years after the accident, the temperature of one of the tanks, or maybe just a portion of one of the tanks, increased, but it happened while the plant was shut down and unattended. So the plant was empty, but in one tank there was a hotspot. It reached a point where a self-sustaining exothermic reaction began to generate large amounts of dioxin. Management at the plant were initially very secretive, and they didn't reveal to the public that dioxin had been released until 10 days after the accident. Now, in addition to the physical injuries caused, Seveso generated a large amount of dread and uncertainty in the local community, 
Arguably, the dread and uncertainty was actually a lot worse than what was actually physically going wrong. And the result was a regulatory focus on transparency and whether the public need to know about nearby major hazards and their management. The European Community issued Directive 82-501, which is just known as the Seveso Directive. In the United Kingdom, Seveso is implemented as the Control of Major Hazards or COMAR regulations. The Seveso Directive required all installations manufacturing or storing large quantities of dangerous substances to document how they were managing safety and what their emergency plans were. So the shift here was from just managing safety to managing in a way that allowed public oversight. The third accident, Bhopal, in 1984. The Union Carbide plant in Bhopal, India, manufactured a pesticide called Seven. An intermediate chemical in producing Seven was methyl isocyanate, a highly poisonous liquid or vapour. Approximately 30 metric tonnes of this gas was released into neighbouring suburbs on December 3, 1984, killing almost 25,000 residents and injuring over 100,000 others. The substance reacts with water, generating a large amount of heat. As a result of either cleaning or sabotage, the exact trigger event was disputed by Union Carbide, water was introduced into a tank full of methoisocyanate. Contrary to established safety procedures, which required tanks to be kept half full and refrigerated, the tank was 87% full and routinely hotter than the temperature at which the over-temperature alarm was supposed to be sounding. So this pretty clearly indicates that none of the safety features of the plant were fully effective. As well as, well as the ones I've mentioned so far, the scrubber and flare tower were inactive and in any case wouldn't have been sufficient. The water spray system was not fit for purpose, and no effective public warning system was available. When public warnings were eventually issued, they were misleading, and in some cases led to inappropriate medical treatment. The occurrence of such a large disaster in a developing country, at the same time as the Seveso Directive was being introduced in Europe, prompted an immediate discussion about the socio-political factors influencing events before and after the accident. Many of the problems with the plant had previously been identified in a safety report prepared by Union Carbide. The issues identified in the report, though, had not been addressed, and no one within the company or any regulatory agency had made sure they were addressed. The fourth accident, Challenger, also in 1984. The technical cause of the Challenger Shuttle disaster was hot gas escaping past two O-ring seals on the solid rocket motor. There was evidence from previous flights that blow-by, small amounts of escaping gas, was occurring, and reason to suspect that the problem was worse when the environmental temperature was low. The morning of the Challenger launch was significantly colder than any previous launch attempt, so based on the previous evidence this was something to be worried about. The sophisticated shuttle safety program, combined with the apparent foreseeability of the accident, prompted discussion afterwards of the sociological forces at work within NASA and Morton Thiokol, the designers of the solid rocket motor. The nature and scope of this debate is neatly summed up in a footnote to the lessons of the Challenger investigations by Paul Dombrowski.
Others have explored other aspects of the disaster. Windsor presents an organisational communication perspective as well as a social constructionist perspective. Renz and Greg, a risk assessment perspective. Guan et al, a social psychological perspective. Herndl et al, a rhetorical and argumentative perspective. Pace, a discourse community perspective. And Roland and Seeger, separately, a public policy perspective. Dombrowski himself was concerned with professional communication. Now, none of these points of view deny the technical or procedural aspects of safety. But they all share an understanding that safety management isn't just technical and procedural. It's social, it's political, and it's psychological. The fifth accident, Clapham Junction, in 1988. On 12 December 1988, a passenger train near Clapham Junction Station collided with the rear of another passenger train, was derailed, and collided with a third train made up of empty coaches. 35 passengers and crew were killed. The passenger train should have been warned to stop by a signal which should have been displaying a red aspect, but it was instead showing green. The technical cause of the accident was a wire short-circuiting the track circuit, the system that should have detected the passenger train standing on that section of track. The wire had been left in place during an upgrade two weeks before the accident, and it had moved to touch the track circuit during maintenance the night before the accident. The investigation report by Anthony Hidden is a masterpiece of root cause analysis. Starting with the technical cause, the report considers the human errors leading to the situation, in particular the actions of the maintainer responsible for the incorrect wire. But rather than placing blame there, the report considers why the maintainer behaved incorrectly, and why the error wasn't detected through supervision and testing. In doing so, the report recognises that some human errors are inevitable, requiring independent checking, but also that task design, fatigue, interruptions, training and supervision can all have an impact on the rate at which errors occur. As the report discusses higher levels of responsibility in the organisation, it becomes more trenchant in its criticism of individuals, but it continues to seek explanations beyond individual failure to follow good practice. The supervisor and tester in charge are accused of failing in their responsibilities, but always in the context of an organisation which did not clearly communicate those responsibilities or even equip the individuals to discharge them. Their superiors in turn are criticised for poor management, but in the context of a system of management that wasn't working. Much of the hidden report deals with a safety practice called wire counts. Previous incidents with the same technical cause as the Clapham Junction collision generated strong recommendations for improved testing processes, including independent wire counts. These process improvements did not happen, and the organisation was not monitoring their implementation, so it was not aware that they did not happen. There was a set of safety management practices, but no safety management system. No way to monitor the execution, performance and improvement of the safety management practices. Accident number six, Houston Chemical Complex in 1989. The Philips 66 company plant in Houston manufactured polyethylene. An intermediate stage of the manufacturing process, 
requires a highly volatile mix of ethylene and isobutane. On October 23, 1989, a large amount of the mixture vented to the atmosphere. 23 workers were killed in an explosion which demolished the plant. One of the required maintenance procedures for the plant was removing and cleaning the settling leaks from the tanks containing the isobutane mixture. Protection against gas leak during this operation was provided by means of a ball valve in each leg, which when closed, isolated the leg. There was no visible indication, though, which way the valve was pointing, and it was possible to actually accidentally reverse the connection of the air pipes controlling the valve. So on Saturday, October 21, 1989, the legs of one of the tanks were ready for maintenance. Either the ball valves were locked, tagged, and disconnected in the open position, or the compressed air pipes were subsequently reconnected and accidentally used to open one of the ball valves. The mere fact that there are multiple possible explanations for what went on indicates serious deficiencies with the safety protocols. Even with the best possible interpretation though, there was no protection there against either reconnection of the compressed air pipes or a valve locked into an open position. The accident poses challenges to a command and control top-down view of safety management because procedures at the plant were not just in violation of good industry practice, they were in violation of Phillips' own corporate practices. This local breakdown, however, can be explained with more sophisticated organisational models. For example, there's an author called Jens Rasmussen who describes organisations as locally self-adapting, requiring safety management structures which enable rather than try to prevent safe local adaption. So, six accidents there. Now, if organisations can be considered as engineered systems, then every one of those accidents can be explained as arising from a flawed system. There was an evidence of a top-down intent to be safe, but no mechanism capable of achieving that intent. And the important thing is that people were trying in every case really, really hard to be safe. They were spending a lot of money on safety systems, both physical control safety systems and procedural safety analysis hazard investigation type activities. So this brings us on to the idea of safety management systems. Safety management systems, often just called SMS, are an extension of total quality management, which was an idea pioneered by Japanese manufacturers. The first authors in English I can find who talk about total quality are people called Feigenbaum and Ishikawa. A management system is characterised by a company-wide set of recorded processes. The system has mechanisms for both monitoring compliance with the processes, but also measuring performance of the processes. If processes aren't followed, or if they don't achieve their desired purpose, then you change the processes. You make them better or you add in more stuff. Now, as with total quality management, safety management systems don't introduce completely new ideas, but they shift the emphasis of what a safety organisation is trying to do. So priority gets placed on continuous improvement 
recognition that the current processes and behaviour can and should be better. On management by fact, collecting and using data to make decisions. And people-based management, ensuring that people know what to do, how to do it, and receive feedback on their performance. I don't want to come across as an uncritical supporter of safety management systems. I've seen them go badly in too many cases. But I do think that they're better than the alternative. The problem is that safety management systems are often poorly understood, even by those who are supposed to be implementing them. I'd go even further and say often especially by those who are supposed to implement them. The difference between safety management and a safety management system is not documentation, it's feedback. You turn something from a process into a system not by documenting it, but by creating a loop that tells you whether it's working well and what direction you need to change to make it better. At the moment, there are a number of authors suggesting the need for a new way in safety. Three strands that come up a lot in particular are talking about resilience, talking about safety differently, and talking about high reliability organisations. All three of them advocate a focus on the positive attributes of safe organisations, rather than safety as a negative hunt for human error. Now, my view is that what they're searching for is the elusive difference between managing safety and managing safety well. Some of it may be cultural, although that by itself is now a bit of an overused and therefore overly vague concept. Some of it may be systematic, but again, systems approaches are often over-advocated and underdefined. Here's a useful test adapted from lesswrong.com that I use to explain to students how to evaluate sources. Ask yourself, what do you think you know, and how do you think you know it? Then ask, what if it wasn't so? Would your means of knowing reveal the mistake? Is your organisation safe? How do you think you know that? If your organisation wasn't safe, would you really know? Would your current way of managing safety tell you if it was in fact the wrong way of managing safety. So managing safety is not enough. Almost all the time when someone dies in an accident, there was some sort of safety management going on. So that's it for this episode of DisasterCast. I'll put a link in the show notes to the new graduate certificate in safety leadership. You can also visit the webpage at disastercast.co.uk to ask questions, leave feedback, or read episode transcripts. I'm looking forward to the next episode already. It's called There Aren't Enough Major Accidents. We're going to have a look at data collection for safety, and the problem of how you get enough information about whether something's safe or unsafe, without killing a lot of people to get that information. I'd prefer none of you try to solve that problem directly for me, though. So in the meantime, keep safe.